0: This is the third of three studies in Isaiah 55 as we've been going through the whole book of Isaiah. And uh, so we're coming out to the end of this particular chapter as we continue on. Let's read uh, verses 8 through 13. That's the last portion of this chapter. And then we're going to pray and then get right into our study this evening. Isaiah 55 verse 8. For my thoughts... Are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, once again, we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit upon each and every person here. That every word that proceeds out of my mouth, but more importantly, out of your mouth, Lord God will will bring life to our hearts and wisdom and understanding as to how to live our lives in these days and times in which we live. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and mercy toward us. We thank you for that great salvation that comes through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How great that salvation is, so rich, and so free. Lord, help us to understand these things as we study this passage tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is amazing to me how many people try to second-guess God by turning the tables around and making God after their own image. And because of this, Reasoning in the end that he thinks and acts just as they do. Here's the case in point. Think of the objects of the psalmist Asaph's admonition in Psalm 50. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction to to the one verse that I want you to read. In verse 16, God is, going to, God is going to speak to the wicked. He says, but to the wicked God says, what right have you to declare my, st- my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? Let me give you just a little hint here. He's speaking to his own people who have forsaken him and turned from him and acted as if they've crafted a God design in their own image. And he calls them the wicked. And he says in verse 17, Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him, and have been partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Now notice verse 21. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. Do you see that, that phrase? You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. That is a powerful statement. They're thinking that God being silent in what they were doing gave them every right then to do whatever they did. And then fashioning in their minds that God is like them. You know, it is never a mark of wisdom to either second-guess God or to deal with the things of God on our own terms. How many people do that today? They want God, but they only want Him on their own terms. They don't want to see what His Word has to say, and they don't want to do what His Word is very clear to do. Our text here tells us clearly that God just doesn't think the way we do. By the way, I am going to connect this to the previous passage, so we'll see the whole context of this. But you see, this passage here, beginning in verse 8, refers right straight back to the statement made in the previous verse. Verse 7, look at that. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon So the next statement is, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God's thoughts aren't like ours. We ourselves are quick to hold grudges against people. That's how we think. His ways aren't like ours. We're quick to take revenge against people. What did we just hear Him say to the unrighteous? What did we hear Him just say to the wicked? Let the wicked forsake His way. Let the unrighteous man, you know, for, in, in essence, of forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. When He returns to me, I'll have mercy on Him. When He returns to me as God, I will abundantly pardon Him. And then he says, for my ways or my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways aren't your ways. Are you getting the picture here? The problem is that too often we base God's forgiveness on what we think he ought to do. And sometimes we'd rather he not forgive at all. Other people, that is, right? Sometimes we would, we would that he wouldn't even forgive some people at all. But doesn't that reflect our own heart? But then you might even think this way. Usually some people say, you know, I, if I were God, I, w- I, wouldn't forgive, I wouldn't forgive that person. We've heard that. Maybe we've even said it. If I were God, I wouldn't forgive that person. But let me make it even more personal here. Because sometimes we see ourselves as so unworthy. And the fact of the matter is, of course, we all are unworthy before God, but God has given us the righteousness of Christ. But understand this, sometimes we feel ourselves so unworthy that we'll even say, if I were God, I would never forgive a person like me. Well, I've got some real good news for you. You're not God. Now take that home with you. You are not God. Amen? Amen? You're not God. Now, don't listen to people that say, "Well, you know, there, there, there's there's God, and He's made us gods." Would you go back and read Psalm 50 one of these days? Read it real carefully. Psalm 80. There's a lot of it. There are a lot of psalms. There's psalms that you can read that you you realize you're not God. There's only one God. That's what the Bible teaches us. One God. Consider how God described Himself to Moses. Go to Exodus chapter 34 for just a moment. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Notice what God describes Himself to Moses as. He says in verse 6, "...and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed..." Now this is the Lord proclaiming of Himself. "...the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth..." keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But how does he begin his description of himself? He begins by saying that he is God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin yet by no means clearing the guilty. You see, it is true that the Lord will one day judge sin, but before He does, we will know that He is overflowing with mercy and patience. If we are all believers in Jesus Christ here today, if we have all confessed our sins before Him, and He's forgiven us of our sins and cleansed us from all unrighteousness, we can understand right now that He is a God of mercy. Because we in ourselves would say, I would never forgive anybody like what, you know, for what I did. But He already has. And Jesus has already gone to the cross with our sins. You know, think about how, God, how patient God was with the children of Israel. And this is astounding to me. Think of how patient God was with Israel. He had promised them that if they were disobedient, of course, He would judge them. And the warning for that judgment came to us in Leviticus 26. You can read that later. Which, by the way, when that was given to the children of Israel, it was about 1440 B.C. All right, this is important. Around 1440 B.C., God gives them this warning that He will judge them if they're disobedient. The final judgment from that warning, from that particular warning, you'll find in Jeremiah 39. If you're writing these down, look them up later. But in Jeremiah 39, we're told of the final judgment that comes from that particular warning, and that doesn't occur until 586 B.C. So from 1440 to 586 B.C., that's 854 years of patience. I mean, that that kind of, does that not say something about patience? How patient God is? We're not that patient. 854 years, we're not patient in 854 minutes with some people. Forget that. 8.54 minutes with people. We're not, are we? Please don't boast that you are. Because we'll find something to find out that you are impatient. (laughs) Something will get to your your craw, as they say. (laughs) That's where we are. We're human. Now, the Lord does help us in our patience, doesn't He? But we have to surrender our impatience. There's another point to consider here, and that is that God is speaking. When he says that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Referring back to how he abundantly pardons. He is speaking about the gift of salvation that he has extended to us. For many people, you see, that is just too easy. It's just too easy that God extends mercy, that God extends pardon. It's just too easy. Some people feel that they have to work their way into heaven. It's unfortunate that today so many people are working their way into heaven. When they they need to realize that if you've come to, to, to the salvation that is so rich and free in Jesus Christ, you're not working from your salvation, you're working... Or uh, you're not working towards your salvation. You're working from your salvation. You're doing this now to, to do good works unto the Lord, not to earn salvation, because we can't earn it. Salvation is nothing earned from us. We read the book of Romans, and that makes it very clear. None of us are righteous. No, not one. All have come. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That is why we need that. Justification by faith through what Jesus Christ did. Not for what we've done. Like Paul says in the book of Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. But there's still that thought, I've got to do something, Lord, to work my way into heaven. And you know what the Lord is saying is that the worst sinner can enter into heaven by faith and the most righteous person will not by his lack of faith. And that's astounding to us, because there are a lot of on the out on the outward there are a lot of people that do good works, but if they don't have faith in Christ, they don't go to heaven. Bottom line. And yet the worst sinner. Think about the sinner on the cross next to Jesus. What is? partner in crime on the other side was cursing at Jesus. That one sinner said to Jesus, remember me. His heart had softened when he saw what Jesus Christ did in going to the cross for us. And Jesus said, this day you will be in paradise. The worst sinner can enter into heaven by faith. You know, that certainly is a difficult concept for our finite minds to grasp. Now, understand, finite minds, that's us. (laughs) But the Lord can do what He pleases. The Lord can do what He pleases because He is Lord, because He is God, because He is sovereign. And yet, in doing what He does, He never contradicts who He is in His holiness. And so the questions are asked, How far is the distance between God's thoughts and ours? How far is the distance between his ways and ours? Let's look at verses eight and nine once again. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So there it is. How far? As far as heaven is from the earth. And we'd say that's that's pretty distant. His ways from our ways. Have you ever heard anyone say, I just don't understand God? You've probably said it yourself. I just don't understand God. Well, here's a thought God's all knowing, and we're not. God is all powerful, and we're not. God is all present, and we're not. There's a thought. If we could know everything about God, listen carefully. If we could know everything about God, how mighty would we then be? We'd be pretty mighty, wouldn't we? Well, do you remember these questions? Would you turn back to Isaiah 40 for just a moment? Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 12. This is God asking us the questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as His counselor has taught Him? With whom did He take counsel? And who instructed Him and taught Him in the path of justice? Who taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Well, of course, we know the answer is no one, because he has been that from eternity. The fact of the matter is, if we could find somebody who could answer those questions and say, well, I know who it was, then that one would be God, wouldn't it? How do we understand the thoughts of an infinite God with our finite minds? It has been estimated that our universe is some 12 billion light years in span. Enough said. Enough said. What did I just read? Who has measured heaven or the heavens, and that's speaking of all of the heavens, with His hand. You see, if it only took brains or intellect to believe in God, we wouldn't need faith. But that doesn't mean that we turn our intellects off when we become Christians. But it does mean that we can't fully understand an infinite God with our finite minds. No matter how hard we try. And so we must believe by faith what God is doing and what He has said. Trusting Him and Him alone. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He shall direct your paths. Trust in the Lord. But here's the glorious news. We seem so distant from His thoughts and from His ways. And yet the glorious news is this, that heaven came down to earth in Jesus Christ. Heaven came down to earth in Jesus. Our thoughts and our ways can be transformed to be more like God's thoughts and God's ways. Turn to Romans chapter 8, if you will, and there in verses 28 through 30, a familiar passage to many. And we know, Paul writes, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, notice, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. But in verse 29, that statement... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Daily, we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Day by day, little by little, we chip away at the, at the fleshly thoughts and ways that we are so used to, so that we may be formed more and more by His hands into the image of Of Jesus Christ. This is something that Gail Irwin will share with us when he comes. Because he talks about the nature of Jesus. You can read about that if you want in Philippians chapter 2. About the mind of Christ, how he humbled himself. He took the form of of a bondservant. And he humbled himself, even to the point of death, the death on the cross. Important for us to realize that that's how we are to be molded into the image of Christ. Now let's understand this. The distance will never be closed. God is always infinite. We will always be human. But when our salvation is complete... When our, when our salvation is complete and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we are united with Him in glory, that distance will be as close as is possible. And, and let's never forget the exhortation. If you'll go back to verse 6 in our, in our very text, in Isaiah 55, go back to verse 6, because it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Oh, the distance is so great between his thoughts and our thoughts, his ways and our ways. But we're still to seek the Lord. We are still to call upon him while he's near. And you see, he comes near to us. What does James tell us in his his letter? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And though his thoughts may be so far above ours, his love is ever present. His mercies, His grace, so ready to be offered to us, to be given to us. And it's interesting that when you think about the context of this whole passage, you go back to the very fact that we even began with a thought that was awfully hard to to swallow Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine, milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Incline your ear, just going down that whole list. God providing salvation without price. Because the price has been paid in Jesus Christ. God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways. are way past our finding out, but He has come to us. And again, I want to give you that little understanding of the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is man trying to find a way to reach God. Relationship is God coming down to man who could never reach God anyway in his own power or in his own mind. The difference and the distance between God and man is revealed not to discourage us from seeking him, but to keep us humble as we seek him. And folks, that's where we need to be. Humble as we seek the Lord. Why? Because he is who he is. He is awesome. He is mighty. He is great. Let's not treat Him like some people in the world like to treat Him. Even in the church, you know. Oh, man, He's the man upstairs, you know. He's my best buddy. You know, a lot of people say some funny things, but you know what? God is God. Almighty. Creator of all things. And Isaiah 6 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. With that in mind, let's go on to verse 10, where it says, For as the rain comes down, the word four there says, there's a continuing thought here that we need to consider. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. In the Middle East, where rain is a necessary and oftentimes rare commodity, the land is dry and hard, and yet when the rain does come, Seemingly overnight, the land bursts forth with vegetation. You know, we get to see that a little bit here in El Paso too. We've gone through some dry seasons and all, and and you can if you ever get a chance to be close to the mountain on either side, the west side or the northeast side. But you know, sometimes you you can just see after a, a, a the first big rain that we have, the next couple of days, all of a sudden you see these beautiful. Yellow flowers pop up. You see, you know, some vegetation come out that you didn't even expect to see. And th- and that's that's how it is there in, in the Middle East all the time. <laughs> you see, the life is already there in the ground. It just needed water to spring forth. And the same is true of our hearts. You know, as as we're using this this particular principle, as God is using it. You know the uh, you know the the water coming coming down and the you know, the vap- evaporation, condensation, all of that kind of stuff. And, it, you know, it goes about and it does all that it does. and goes back up into the clouds and whatnot. You know, all of that is just to say this. It, it, it's, it's just true about our own hearts as well. That as God's Word is spoken, the refreshing waters of the Holy Spirit break up the hardness of our hearts. And it brings forth life in us. The Word of God, in other words, is alive and it is powerful and it will accomplish that which the Lord desires. That is the power of God's word. That is why I, I, I want to say tonight that faith does not come by entertainment. It doesn't come by just skits. It doesn't come by just social pro- uh, programs or so-called faith-based initiatives that when you can, you know, have to bring it together with government. Listen, it doesn't come with stories or anything else except with what Paul said in Romans ten verse seventeen. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's how faith comes. I'm not saying that, you know, is all that bad, except when you, you, know, you want to make that the most important thing that you do in church. Skits are good. Opens people's eyes. There are social programs. The church ought to be doing things to help people that are in need. But these are not the things by which faith comes. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God's Word has power to change lives. How many of us would be sitting here on a Wednesday night if God hadn't changed our hearts? I mean, let's face it. I would suspect that most of us came here desiring to come tonight, to worship the Lord, to be in the presence of God's people, to to enjoy the presence of God's people, but more importantly, to enjoy His presence, and then to learn from Him and to grow in His Word. You see, God has that kind of power to change our lives and to produce then a work in our lives as well. Consider what the Word of God is. Look at uh, Hebrews 4.12. You know this? For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, The Word of God in the King James, it says, the Word of God is quick and powerful. And I've always liked that, you know, quick and powerful. Quick is, is actually, you know, a synonym of uh, in the old language, you know, it was a synonym of of, of living or alive. Uh, you know, you've you've uh, there was a movie called the, the Quick and the Dead, and you know, so you get the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. And and I've always liked that because you know, you know, uh, dead things aren't quick. Dead people are not quick, you know. But the Word of God is quick. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. In Second Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen, Paul says this about the word of God. He says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. By the way. Inspiration of God literally means God-breathed. All Scripture is God, God-breathed God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for uh, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, and that is the woman of God as well, but that the person of God, the man of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, if you will, uh, I'm, I just want to read this in the New Living Translation. The same verse. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. That's pretty simple, but pretty straightforward as well with what we just read in the the New King James Version. So just as rain and snow are never wasted, But accomplish God's purposes on this earth. So his word never fails in what it goes out to accomplish. God's word, in other words, never fails in his intended purpose. And I want to emphasize the word his intended purpose. Because sometimes we, with his word, might fail with our intended purposes. If we don't go prayed up. And, and right in our hearts to give God's word properly. But when we, took, when we take a look at God himself, God's word never fails in his intended purpose. God has a purpose every time his word goes forth. But it has to be spoken in truth. And it has to follow that, that line that Paul gives to Timothy when, when he says, Study to show yourself approved of God. Study the word of God. Be diligent in your study of the word of God. To show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we have a responsibility when we study God's word and when we present God's word. Because in Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Yes, His intended purpose, His word will stand forever. And one other thing to consider is that the operation of God's Word will also bring forth fruit. That's something to see in this picture of, of, the, uh, of the water coming down and, 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 and fulfilling its purpose. Because in verse 10 it says, making it bring forth and bud. Talking about you know, the water on the earth, it makes whatever's on the earth bring forth sea, or I should say bring forth fruit. So bringing forth fruit is a very important thing in the lives of the believers who are studying God's word. And that fruit, by the way, has many applications, many different applications. Because take this example, the same grain that gives seed to the sower also gives bread to the eater. Many different kinds of applications as God's words go forth. It can either be grain that, that gives seed to the sower, it can also give bread to the eater. So there's no reason at this point, then, to excuse poor teaching and preaching by saying this. Well, God's Word doesn't return void. (laughs) You see, there's no excuses. There shouldn't be any poor teaching and poor preaching. There shouldn't be. If a person has followed what Paul has said to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God. Study the Word. Study it. Understand it. Because the principle may be clear and true from the passage, but by a preacher's poor preparation or preaching, there may be little of God's Word put forth. Many a preacher ignores, dilutes, and even obscures the Word of God, that, that, uh, that little that goes forth. And little will go forth if they ignore, dilute, and obscure the Word. Little of it goes forth. And when little goes forth... That little may succeed, but how much better if more of the whole counsel of God went forth to succeed. So, this is the very focus of our Bible teaching here. That you get the full counsel of God's word. It makes it a lot easier for us to study God's word. If you know that when you come on Sunday morning, you know we're going to be in the book of Acts, because that's where we've been since January of 2007. And we're not even halfway through yet. Almost halfway through. Almost. You know when you come here, if you come on a regular basis, for the most part you're going to be coming to study the book of Isaiah on Wednesday night. And if you go to one of the home Bible studies uh, during the week, if they have a a certain plan in some of them, they might be doing a a book study, you're going to know. We want to make it clear to you that God's Word is that important. That we will take the time to study God's Word so you will be fed as God wants you to be fed from His Word. Because we want it to go forth and succeed, and we don't want to be the stumbling block in the way of that. By the way, there's another stumbling block. You. I said it last week. If you don't listen, if you don't heed God, it doesn't matter how much goes out. You've got to listen. You've got to have your ears open, your mind open, your heart open to God's Word. You have to be praying. You can't be giving that always to the pastors and, 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 and saying, well, you know, they pray for us. Well, you've got to pray. Jesus taught us all to pray. He didn't teach us, you know, just certain people. He wants us all to pray. Same with the study of the Word. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Ephesian elders on the eve of his departure to Jerusalem as he's making his way now, uh, wanting to get to Jerusalem. And he has them gather in Miletus in Acts chapter 20. And I just want to pick up in, in verse 26 here. Because I want to make this statement, I want to make it clear to you, the heart of Paul. And you have to read this statement from verse 17 on uh, in Acts chapter 20. So you, I'll, I'll give you that homework tonight. But in verse 26 it says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I have not shunned to declare to you all of God's word. And so that's how powerfully strong the churches were where Paul was. Because he did not deny them the whole counsel of God's word. The last two verses of our text now, getting into verses 12 and 13. Describe both the joy of the exiles on their release from captivity and the joy of Israel when they share in that glorious exodus in the end of the age and return to their land. So we, we come back now to the, 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 the main intention of all of this The last uh, uh, part from actually Acts chapter, uh, I should say uh, Isaiah chapter 40 to where we are here to this point. And that is the restoration of the children of Israel in their land by God. There is again that near fulfillment, and then there is the far fulfillment, you see. So we'll see a little bit of that in this section here. For you shall go out with joy, it says, and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The ultimate fulfillment of this passage will be in the kingdom age, referring to the restoration of the nation of Israel under the rule of Messiah, Jesus God has promised that it would happen, and it will. And when Messiah, when Messiah does come back, the Jews will go out of the countries that they've been living in, and they will be led forth by the King of Kings Himself. Now, to some extent, many Jews have left countries where they had been living in, in the diaspora, which is the you know the, the uh, scattering out of uh, from from Jerusalem after AD seventy. Going into all of the other nations, but they're coming back. I mean Israel is just a beautiful place to see how God is fulfilling the prophecies of uh, the the major prophets as well as the minor prophets and and certainly that's setting up for the coming of Jesus Christ as well. I wish we had more time to talk about that prophetically well, we've been doing that for I don't know how many months in in the book of Isaiah, but we've been talking about that along the way. Jesus is coming. The the, the very nation of Israel makes that very clear. And so when the kingdom is established, and that is the kingdom where Jesus leads them in to the very uh, place called Jerusalem, all nature will sing with joy to the Lord. Isaiah has already given glimpses of this to us. For example, Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Isaiah 44, verse 23 says, "...Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing. You mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel." It's calling for creation to sing out. Isaiah 52, verses 8 and 9, it says, "...Your watchmen shall lift up their voices, with their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion." Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people; he has redeemed Jerusalem. And you might say, "Well, this is all metaphoric. I mean, you know, uh, trees don't really clap their hands, and 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 all of these mountains aren't going to be you know moving on and singing, You know, I mean, that's that's thing of you know uh, what is that uh, Hollywood thing? You know, the George Lucas thing? You know, the Pixel or whatever it is. You know. The, Pixar, that thing, you know. They make the mountains sing and all of that. No, God's going to make them sing. God's commanding His creation to do this. You think, you're crazy. So are you. But anyway. uh, No, I'm not crazy. I'm just telling you what God's Word says. Turn to Romans chapter 8 again. Maybe I should have told you to keep your finger there. Romans 8, verse 19. It says, For the earnest expectation of the creation, notice, the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about about it in this term, in this way. Creation is just waiting for that last person to come into the kingdom. I don't know who that's going to be. I hope you're all already in. I really do. I hope you're all already in the kingdom. But someday, there's going to be one last one. The revealing of the sons of God. And folks, I've got to tell you this. I hope I get to see you in heaven. I hope I get to see you all in heaven. You know what I'm saying to you? If you're not sure, you need to get right with Jesus. You need to ask him to come into your life, into your heart. Because I want to see you in heaven too. Wouldn't it be such a waste to hear God's word, to hear it week in and week out and never know The salvation of Jesus Christ. And be given all the opportunity to know Him. How sad. Know who Jesus is. So we can see each other in heaven. What a joy that will be. Let's go on. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You know, all of God's creation is alive because of what God has done in creating it for His glory. Listen to what God, listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 19. As He's getting ready to go into the city of Jerusalem. It says, Then as He was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives... The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to Him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But He answered and He said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. That's Jesus saying that. If these, my people, if these, my disciples, keep silent, those stones will immediately cry out. Makes you wonder why there are silent Christians today who don't rejoice in Jesus Christ. Who know that He's already gone to the cross, who know that He's won the victory for us on the cross, who know that He has risen from the dead, and they still don't sing, and they still don't rejoice. What is it? I don't understand it. And please don't say I don't know how to sing, because the Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And if it's a noise is all you can give, then give that noise. Do you understand? I hate to see it. I'm sorry. You know, that's just me now—the passion inside of me. We give you the words. We give you some music background. Why can't you sing? See, I'm not picking on anybody because I have my eyes closed. I don't know who's singing. But I'm singing. Not because I have to. Because I love Jesus. Folks, you need to love Jesus. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you haven't come to get to love Jesus with all your heart that you're ready to pour out everything from your very, the, the very depth of your soul. Man, this Sunday, you need to come and sing unto the Lord. And even you're going, ah, 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 you know, man, you know, hard rocker guy here, you know. But it's okay, he's praising the Lord. You know, it's all right. If these should keep silent, then those stones will cry out. Okay, well, let's deal with some more problems here. Instead of the thorn, in the text that we have, instead of the thorn, shall come up the cypress tree. This isn't a problem. It's actually a, a good solution. Instead of the thorns, shall come up the cypress tree, instead of the briar, the myrtle tree. Where there had been barrenness and reminders of the curse, there would now be beautiful and useful trees. The illustration is clear. In God's glorious work of restoration, He takes away the barren and the cursed and brings forth beauty and fruit. God does that Always. He took our barren lives and He gave us beauty. He gave us beauty for ashes, the Scriptures tell us. You ever considered your life as ashes before you came to the Lord? You ever picked up a handful of ashes? What do they do? They just crumble in your hand. And He turned ashes into beauty. And sometimes we think, well, we're nothing in the sight of the Lord. No, no. He loves seeing you. He made you. If you have a problem looking in the mirror, that's your problem, but He loves you. And He loves the beauty He made in you. (coughs) The last thought in this verse, verse 13, I want to touch on. It says, and it shall be to the Lord for a name. For an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, when the Lord does restore, all the work will be done for His name. Not for anyone else's, but for His name. And for His glory. It shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What everlasting sign did God ever give? They did give one in the book of Genesis. That sign of the beautiful rainbow. To remind us that he would never destroy the earth the same way again. By the way, that rainbow is God's sign. Folks, that belongs to the Lord. And when he does restore, the work that he does is safe, Sound, secure, and protected. Because He is the one who protects it. There's one last thought that I want to share with you tonight. Some deep sacred lessons once hidden in that last phrase of verse 13. In fact, throughout all of Scripture, for us to see in the light of God's Word tonight. I'm going to give you three passages of Scripture tonight. I want you to catch the one word in all of those passages that we've seen in the last two verses of Isaiah 55. Genesis 3, verse 17 and 18. See if you catch it. And then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. What word is it? Thorns. Thorns. Got it? Now look at Mark chapter 15. Mark 15 verse 16 and following. Now, the first scripture reference was in the garden. God speaking to Adam and Eve after they've sinned. The fall of man. Mark 15, verse 16 says, Then the soldiers led him, Jesus, away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, Put it on his head, and began to salute him, hail, King of the Jews. The third reference is in 2 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul. Speaking and writing to us in verses 7 through 10, he says, and lest I should be exalted. Above measure by the abundance of the revelations. He had been receiving so many revelations from the Lord. But he didn't want to get to that point of being exalted above measure, which is getting prideful over the fact that he was receiving all of these particular messages from the Lord. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities in reproaches, in needs, and persecutions, in distresses, and may I add, in thorns. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to leave you with three things to remember and to pray about tonight, about your own life. The first is the thorns of life. The thorns of life that came to us because of man's disobedience to God. Were we to make a list of those things that we have reaped from what we ourselves have sown or reaped what others have sown in this life? Suffering from our own neglect, failed opportunities, ill health, tendencies toward evil, associations with the wicked, no love for God, no care for man, and especially add the word death there. It would be quite a list. I think it would go on and on. The thorns of life. And just think of it. It all goes back to Adam and the fall. It all goes back to the man that was created in the image of God. But then I want you to think about the insignia of royalty the insignia of royalty. Simply, it is thorns. Thorns. How remarkable that the sign of the curse became on the brow of Jesus the crown of royalty. Think about that. How that the sign of the curse, the thorns, became on the brow of Jesus Christ the crown of royalty. The lesson is obvious. He was transformed, or I, sh- I should say, he has transformed the curse into a blessing. He has transformed the curse into a blessing. And we see this in our lives as we look at the third point, and that is the transformations of grace the transformations of grace you see god has given us new views of dark things understand what i mean by that god has given us new views of dark things what we thought was punishment turns out to be the chastening of a loving father What we saw as a knife is not a knife that is of a destroyer, but the scalpel of a surgeon who aims to heal us. You see, God makes our sorrow and our losses occasions for giving more grace. God makes our sorrow and our losses occasions for giving more grace. And in combining all of those thoughts, I want to leave you with Romans 5, verses 17 through 21. Romans 5, verses 17 through 21. We'll close with this. Paul says, for if by the one man's offense, who was that one man? Adam. For if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, Jesus, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think that we have summed up this last section of Isaiah 55, as well as all of Isaiah 55, in the words of Paul. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways, or your ways are not my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts and your thoughts. With that in mind, just remember Jesus came to us. We didn't go to him. Let's pray.